Hey, this is Big Rev. Thanks for tuning in to Masterclass Theology, a weekly podcast where we study books of the Bible a verse at a time and apply it to our lives. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Let's rock. God, we thank you for this, this time we have in your word. And we just, we thank you for this opportunity to study a, a pivotal book of the Bible. And Lord, there's some deep theology in the few verses we're going to be in tonight, but theology is a very, very good thing because it teaches us about who you are and how we relate to you and how we learn from you and and your expectations of us. And God, the greatest thing to learn in life is theology. To be able to interact with you, almighty God, is such a precious thing. And we get to do so through your word. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. One last check of everything here. And there we go. Making sure I'm being recorded. Great, great, great. Well, welcome, welcome. So the, the great puzzle of Hebrews. Hebrews is a great, if you're a puzzle person, I know my family and I, we like to do puzzles every every Christmas. And I was that way growing up as well. But uh, Hebrews is a puzzle. Hebrews, I would argue, is like the book of Ruth, book, the book of, excuse me, the book of Esther, pardon me, the book of Esther in the Old Testament. There's so much we don't know about that book. God's not even present at all, overtly, like we're used to God being present. Well, get this, on the New Testament side, Hebrews is a mystery. It was so much of a mystery that reformers like Luther didn't exactly know what to do with it. There was a time when Luther was opposed to, 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 to Hebrews even being part of the canon. It's like, well, what do we do with this book? Uh, because we don't know who wrote it. We don't know to whom it was written. We have no idea when it was written. We don't even know what's going on. And so the biggest question with Hebrews, the reason why you're here, if you're a theology student, you want to know my opinion on who wrote the book of Hebrews. Now, I have have to then hedge everything by saying we will not know until we get to heaven. And that if, if, if wherever we get that opportunity in heaven to ask questions like that, we're going to we're going to go over to the Holy Spirit and go, who was it? You know, somebody take credit over here. We're going to be everyone sitting on their hands and. But yeah, the, the church history, they've always said it's Paul, and that's, that's the big choice, is that Paul did it. Um, the problem is, um, if, if you, I would never say Paul. Um, the person who wrote Hebrews, it, it has the best Greek in the, in, the, in the New Testament. It has Greek that blows Paul's out of the water. And it's like talking to somebody who is a really good talker and then talking to somebody who's a really good talker. And all of a sudden you get different vocabulary. You're like, wow. It's like kindergarten teachers like to say, I, I always can tell when children come into my classroom, I can always tell whose mommies and daddies read books to them because the kids' vocabulary is just off the charts. That's the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews has the most intense vocabulary in all the, in all the New Testament. And it's like, this, the, the guy who wrote this understood rhetoric the person who wrote this was just really, really just very, very fluent with Greek. It could express anything in Greek. And that's not Paul. Paul was very good with religion. And Paul was more rabbinically trained, not rhetorically trained. And so, yeah, if you make me say Paul wrote it, I would say fine. But then he had his buddy Luke write it all down because it's not Paul's Greek. Okay, so if you want to say Paul's the author, fine, but then Luke wrote it down. There's just no way. Um, who's my choice? Um, I, my choice is what, what, what Martin Luther ended on is Apollos. 
Apollos is a very, uh, you'll find him in the New Testament and Acts, and also they the bring him up in 1 Corinthians. Uh, but yeah, Apollos is a, a, an orator, a rhetorician. Pa Apollos probably had the, the Greek chops to do it. Um, but I do understand if you bring up Apollos, you bring up a man and wife that taught Apollos, Priscilla and Aquila. And they are in that order for a reason because Priscilla is the dominant of the two. And so she probably was the main mover there. So it could have been written by Priscilla and Aquila there. And so that's a, you know, a woman writing a book of the Bible. And that would be just like fun trivia. We'll never get answered until heaven. I don't know. But uh, some people say Barnabas, uh, you know, so, but yeah, you got to have chops in Greek to do, to do what Hebrews does. And there's so many words that exist only in Hebrews. And the problem is that it's like the person who wrote it knew of Paul because there's a lot of similarities with what Paul wrote, but just wrote it a different way. So who wrote the book of Hebrews? I don't know. Um, if I had to have a guess and stand by that, I would say Apollos. Um, but yeah, so that, that would be the, my number one guy. To whom was it written? Uh, again, we don't know. And if you made me choose, it would be the, the main rhetoric center of the world, which was Alexandria, Egypt, probably the smartest area in, in human history, that area, a massive library, uh, the, the great philosopher, Christian philosopher, the religious philosopher Philo was there. Uh, yeah, that is the place. The problem is, is that the Alexandrians love to claim people. They never claimed Apollos, for example. So they didn't, we would see if it was written to the Alexandrians, we, we would expect them to be named or mentioned. We just don't know. Uh, when was it written? This, this we have some information on because of what happened in history. It had to have been finished and written by like AD 95 because there's a letter, I believe it's Clement of Alexandria, writes down most of, most of the book of Hebrews like in a letter. And so it's like it is already existing before AD 95. So first century still. And what's going on? We don't know. All we do know is these people most likely receiving this are second generation believers. So they're receiving the gospel now third hand. Not from Jesus, not from someone Jesus has taught, but from someone that has been taught by Jesus who was taught again. So they're getting it third hand at best. And so these are people who are like in, in like third generation Christianity here. So these are people who are not on the front lines, but they had access to some teaching. So the great puzzle of Hebrews, there's so much we don't know. Why is it in the Bible? Because it's awesome. Because the Holy Spirit is using and has used this book in a mighty way. And the early church recognized that. They looked at this book and they said, wow, um, yeah, we don't understand much about this book, but the Holy Spirit is using this book. So we're just going to recognize that. And yeah, I wanted to give you three types of students who, who especially need the book of Hebrews. Now, you might be one of these types of students. These types of students I'm going to read, read to you are, they're like metaphors. They're also kind of stereotypes. But uh, here we go. The first one is the yeah, but. Are you a yeah, but? Here's what a yeah, but is. Hey, you're a Christian, right? You, you, well, yeah, you know, but and I just, you know, I, I grew up in a church or I grew up with my mom and dad, but I just, you, you know, it was once put to me this way. I was meeting for accountability with a gentleman who said, Joel, do you love your wife as Christ loved the church? Ephesians 5.25. Well, yeah. 
but you know, I, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm holding tough cards or I'm doing this. It's like, yeah, but don't be a yeah, but yeah, but has no business in your marriage. Do you love your husband? Yeah. You know, but it's like, I love you, but no, that's not really love. If you're putting a comma and then the word B-U-T. So a yeah, but is I know better, but I have other priorities. Now I have a big portion of my life where I was swimming in the waters of yeah, but that was me. Okay. That might be you. If that is you embrace it because Hebrews is for you. A yeah, but kind of per, kind of student needs to know better, but also needs to start putting into practice. And the book of Hebrews is going to encourage you to actually put your faith into practice. The second one is the weary. The weary is somebody that might say, you know, I don't really want to, I don't really want to deal with my situation appropriately. I just want some kind of answer. And preferably if it means I don't have to make a decision. This kind of person would look at life when life happens, they would go, oh, come, Lord Jesus, come on. I'm ready for Christ to come now because if he comes now, I don't have to deal with this garbage. Because if Christ comes now, I can stop having to focus on the, what I have to walk through. And I don't have to deal with this. this the weary person has kind of like part of that person is maybe wanting to escape, not have to deal with stuff, maybe not confronting something that needs to be confronted. Um, but yeah, the weary person is just kind of like, so when they see the news, they see all these things happening and they go, oh, come on, ready, Lord, just come now, just come now. Well, wait a minute. If he's not coming right now, then he's expecting you to be where you're at. So that's the third type of student. And, this, and, and the weary person is going to fit in Hebrews as well, because many of the original audience of Hebrews were going to be that second, third generation Christian who were going through some persecution. But we're going to learn in Hebrews, they had not yet been persecuted to the point of shedding their own blood. And so they were really up against it, but they weren't really dying yet. So they weren't being martyred, but they were really, really being inconvenienced. And so these weary people are going, oh, just come, Lord Jesus. And so that person is a natural student of the book of Hebrews. If that's you, if you get on your news pages and you get on your, your, your video sent to you or your, your, your newspapers and you're like, oh, Lord, just come. I don't want to deal with this life anymore. Well, hold on now. You're still here for a reason. You've got to deal with things. And so that leads to the third student, which is the clay. Remember that old song? You are the potter. I am the clay. Mold me and make me. Shape me. This is what I pray. Yes, the clay. The clay says, you, God, are the potter. I am the clay. So what's going on? I then, the, therefore, see the season of my life as a time to be molded and shaped. Teach me God during these harder times. So you got the yeah, but, which doesn't deal with anything, which doesn't grow, which just kind of just stays there in some stagnant thing where they know better, but they won't do anything. You've got the weary soul who just doesn't want to deal with stuff, who's ready for Christ to come back. And you've got the clay. This is the kind of person who'd be like in biblical counseling, who's like, you know what? I've got some good work I, need, I know I need to do. I know that, you know what, there's a lot I can complain about about my life, but the better question is this, God, what are you trying to teach me right now? What are you teaching me during this season? What do I need to know during this time? You're causing me to go through this time. How can I grow during this horrible crap I'm going through? That's the clay. 
like I'm this lump of clay that God, you're going to be forming. And I, I want to be formed. I want to grow. I'm sick of being stuck and stagnant. Yeah. Of the three, don't be the yeah, but. I can't help it if you're weary, but there's, there's hope for you if you're weary. Be the clay. See, these are the three types of students that like the clay is ready to go. Like, yep, yep, teach me, Lord. I want to know. Well, let's begin. Only three verses tonight. Hebrews 1, 1 to 3. And for those of you who might be thinking, well, golly, how long is this, how long is this class going to be? Three verses? Yet yeah, other chapters will go by faster. But these three are really good. And they're, they're all hyper-focused on Jesus. We want to get this out of the way first. And this is how the author of Hebrews started. God spoke and has spoken. Verse 1 to the first part of verse 2. On many past occasions and in many different ways, God spoke to our fathers through the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. And we're just going to stop there. So theologically speaking, there is general revelation and special revelation. And you know what? I just I just noticed that my chat was being hid, and I, I missed um, I missed a couple of things here. But uh, okay, all right. So general general revelation is basically what can I know about God by just looking at the general things He's made. This is like in a Romans chapter one. You can learn enough about God just by looking at the creative world. You see, the, the, the great, vast design of our universe, it implies a designer who has designed that universe. The complexity is irreducible about um, our, our universe. And so that is something that just doesn't happen. And so looking at the creative world just realizes, wow, someone had to make that because that just doesn't happen. There's not enough time, not enough randomness, not enough mutations, not enough chance, no. It doesn't matter if it's a billion years. That would never, ever happen. That would never mutate on its own. There's no way that had to be designed. And there had to be some intelligent designer. So general revelation is looking out at the world and going, wow, our God is faithful. Look what he did. What does God communicate just in a general sense? And special revelation is God communicating specifically in a special way through the Bible. So that's what the, that's what the verse talks here. On many past occasions and in many different ways, God spoke to our fathers through the prophets. So if you wanted to know what God had to say on a matter in the Old Testament, there was only two ways that was going to happen. The first way, say if you're like an Abraham or a Moses, you know, Moses walked up to that burning bush and it starts talking to him. Okay, God would have to literally speak to you in some fashion. Okay, and a very few people got that. Okay, but the rest of us, got a prophet. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. So you got the word of the Lord coming to a prophet, the prophet being a mouthpiece for God, speaking not his words, or you know, like in Deborah's case, her words, but God's words. And so, yeah, that, that's how God gave special revelation. And so that would later be recorded, the words of the prophets, and uh, they would be recorded down. And that's Holy Scripture. And so special revelation comes through 
according to Hebrews, through the prophets, and now through the Son. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. The idea there's one more word I can use for God's revelation, that's progressive. No, I'm not talking about politics. I'm talking about God has progressively spoke his word. So you, you, you can understand the full will of God in Genesis, but you can't understand all of it unfold. And so we see promise and then fulfillment. So we see, for example, in Isaiah, Isaiah foretold um, the virgin will be with child and, and they shall call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. So we get to the book of Matthew and Matthew says this fulfills what was prophesied about the virgin being with child, calling him Emmanuel. Okay, so we have promise and then progressively leading to fulfillment. And that's how God reveals his word, his will, and his way uh, through the Bible. So it's a special revelation and it is, it is progressively um, unfolded for us. And so remember, the book of Hebrews, like every other book of the Bible, was not written to us, but was preserved for us. So how does God speak today? I am always wary of people who say this. Well, you know, God told me this. Or, you know, someone would come along and say, well, God told me I'm supposed to divorce my husband or something. Really? Are, are you sure? I mean, the, we can walk through that. We can look at, well, how does God view divorce? What does God allow for divorce? Are you sure God would say this? And the, the number one pushback to anybody who would say, well, God spoke to me this is let's go to what God's already said. Let's go to the Bible. We already have God's special revelation. You can't get more special than God's special revelation. You cannot get more unique than that. So someone who's like, well, God, I really feel God telling me this. Watch out with the feelings. Don't just, just run to your feelings. Just hold on. Let's just go right to God's word. What is God? So if someone says, well, what would Jesus do? That doesn't matter as much. We know what Jesus did do. Let's start there. Kind of thing. That's Let's just start with what God's already told us. How does God speak today? Through his word. If you were to come to me and ask me my, my, my advice on something, and I did not take you biblically to the word of God, if you're coming to me with a biblical kind of question or a life question, or I really feel God leading me this way, okay, let's look at this. Let's look at what God's word has to say about these kinds of things and, and what we should do and the kind of decisions we ought to make. And so if this is leading you to sin, I guarantee you God's not leading you to sin. Kind of, okay, this is, look at what, look how God operates, okay? That's how, that's how God speaks today. So what do we do with God's words? We're either obeying God's words or we're not obeying God's words. A lot of times we want to make up words for God or go on gut feelings or something like that. Like, well, I think God's trying to tell me this. No, that's kind of using God's name in vain. It's like, is God leading me this way? God leading me that way? No, God has led us. Now, the Holy Spirit still speaks through his word. And, and Mick texts in, God won't contradict his revealed will. Exactly. The Holy Spirit works through your prayer life. He works through your conscience. He works through your inner, the inner person. It's like he, the Holy Spirit still leads you. The, 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 Jesus said in John, the Holy Spirit's going to guide you into all truth. Okay, but, but he uses his word to do so. And so if you're going outside of his word, that's a great feeling of a certain branch of Christianity that very much goes on utterances and oracles and waits for a new word from God, a fresh wind or a fresh fire from God. No, we have enough. God's word is sufficient. Um, but let's, let's look at seven Jesus truths. These are pretty cool. 
there are some people that say Jesus never claimed to be God. I disagree with them. You know, Jesus would say things like, I and the Father are one. And the very next verse, they got people picking up stones. They're going to kill him. Like the great, oh, no, he didn't kind of thing. And yeah, they need to read John. Exactly. Um, but you, this is going to seal the deal right here. Okay. The, the reason why we're only going to three verses tonight is because, oh, what a three verses. Oh, my goodness. Uh, yeah, these are about who Jesus is. And even Jesus has a category here. He is not just the anointed one, the Messiah. He's the son of God. And so Jesus is God. So God's spoken, has spoken. Okay. Uh, now seven Jesus truths. I'm just going to, I don't need to lower the screen. We're good. All right. First one. So I'm going to read uh, the second part of verse two and verse three. I'll, I'll just read all of verse two. But in these days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his nature, upholding all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Mic drop. Wow. Seven things, seven Jesus truths. Number one, he is... He is the appointed heir. Now, this comes from the, a messianic psalm, Psalm 2. An original reader of the psalms will look at Psalm 2 and go, yeah, that's talking about God's Messiah, God's anointed one, that son of David that's going to come one day and that's going to take Israel and flip the script. And now, you know, Israel is going to be on top again, the great day of the Lord. We're waiting on the Messiah to come do that. And so every son of David, they had this expectation. Could this be that son of David, the son of David? Could that be that Messiah? And every Passover, they had this, this fervor to have this, uh, is this the Messiah time? Is Rome going to be finally be unshackled? And like, are we finally going to, you know, get our time as Israel? Are we finally going to be delivered fully and finally that Messiah? Say, so look at Psalm 2 as one of those Psalms. And Psalm 2 reads in verse 7, I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Now remember, every time an original reader in Hebrew is reading God's son, they're going Messiah, Messiah, Messiah. And that's because of Psalm 2. You are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. So the author of Hebrews, whoever this person is, is latching on to Psalm 2 here. He is the anointed, appointed heir. This Jesus is not just some guy who walked the plains of Galilee. He is the appointed Psalm 2 heir. Number two. And so we're going here. Notice this progression we're going to see in these seven. We're going to start off with the cosmic. Okay. And we'll see that even in like very simple verses, like for God so loved the world. That word for world is cosmos, cosmos. For God so loved the cosmos. For God so loved the world. So we're going to start cosmically here. And then eventually it's going to get more specific. Okay. And we're going to, you and I are going to be in these verses. And then all of a sudden, Jesus is going to sit down. Like done. 
Okay. On the cross, it is finished. Done. He's the appointed heir. Number two, he's the maker of the universe. Maker of the universe. Yeah, this word for universe, it kind of means ages. And I want you to think about that scene in Back to the Future where Doc is up there with the board. He's, he's got the, the, the chalk line. He's trying to explain to Marty about the divergent you know, timelines or whatnot. Jesus is the master of space. He talks about the space-time continuum, I think, in Star Trek. It's like you've got it. Star Trek talks about that. But it's like Jesus is the master of all space-time. All. It's like, that's the word in the Greek there. It kind of means the ages. He's like everything, the universe and the time and space bending around it. As Einstein would talk about later, it's like, yeah, the relativity. Jesus is the master of that, okay? He's the master, the maker of the universe. Wow. The appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. Well, that must mean that the Son of God always was. Yeah. Now, he wasn't like Jesus, you know, the baby that came out of Mary and that grew up as a man in Galilee. Uh, he wasn't always Jesus, but the Son of God always was, always is, always will be. Because he's saying here, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the Son is making everything. Well, Paul's already talked about this. Colossians 1, for in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. So we're not surprised. So, so the author of Hebrews is familiar with Paul's writings, okay? If he's not Paul, I already talked about this, I don't think he is Paul, but he at least knows of Paul, and as and if he is Apollos, he's had some time with Paul. And okay, Apollos spent some a good amount of time teaching alongside Paul. But seriously, he knows his Paul because he must know his Colossians. We have this almost the exact same thing. He's the maker of the universe. He's also the sun is the radiance of God's glory. Number three, radiance. What does that word mean? Yeah, Mick texts in, uh, he's the architect of, of the time and space. Jesus is the incarnation of the Son. He's not the origin of the Son. That's correct. He's the Word made flesh. Um, he's not the first time we have the Word. But yeah, he is the Word made flesh. Exactly. Um, Daniel texts in, let us make man in our image. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. Yeah, our image. Who's the R? Why is there a first person plural there? Is God talking to the angels? Who's there? You've got God and you've got the angels. Who's making man an hour? Who's the hour? Well, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that's plural. Oh, I'm, 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 I'm keeping my coffee rule. My coffee has gone cold, but that's my rule. I don't drink cold coffee, but if, I, if it goes cold on my watch, I drank it. Ooh, it's bracing. All right. Here we go. He is the radiance. What is radiance? Radiance like the rays of the sun. Okay, when you see the sun in the sky and you walked out there on a, on, a, on a summer's day and all of a sudden you start sweating, why? The sun is how many thousands of miles away from you? But yet you're still experiencing the sun because of what's coming off the sun, coming through space and coming to the earth and shining, that shining upon you, the radiance. It's that which shines forth from a source of light. 
The sun's rays reach the earth that way. Jesus is the glorious light of God shining into our heart and lives. It's kind of a poetic thing here. He's the radiance of God's glory. All that glorifies God shines. But it's not that specific. It's almost like Jesus has personified God. Like he's kind of God. Like the kids today would talk about maybe it's like a God avatar or something. He's not quite God, but it's like he's God's guy. And so we need something more because that's nice. It's beautiful. But we just need something a little bit. Well, guess what? Number four. He is the exact representation of his nature. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his nature. What that means, it is the, the, it's a, the Greek word character. okay? What that was, was like an imprint, an impression, how every quarter looks the exact same way, pressed. When you have a mold and you press something down, as long as the mold does not break or change shape, every single pressing is going to be exactly the same. That's the word they used here. Jesus is like that impression. It is an exact replica. That's what Jesus is. Literally, God made flesh. Yes, thanks, Daniel. But yeah, he's the exact impression. Jesus isn't just personifying God. Jesus is not like, "Hmm, I wonder what God would look like if he was a human. I bet he would look like Jesus. Now that's missing the point. He He doesn't represent God. Jesus is God. He is exactly God. I mean, this is it. I mean, there is no, the author of Hebrews isn't messing around. He, a master of the Greek language, could not speak it any clearer. He's using images from everyone's life. You know that coin you've got in your pocket? How every coin, like your coin looks like his coin. Look, Yeah, I get that. That's God and Jesus right there. You know the rays of the sun, how it's so many, you know, so far away, but you're feeling it? Yeah, that's what Jesus does with God's glory. Upholding all things, number five. The verse says, upholding all things by his powerful word. You know, in the ancient world, there was there was the statue of Atlas. Anyone ever seen that statue? He's got like, we sing the song, he's got the whole world in his hands. Well, Atlas had the whole world on a stinking back, okay? He's up there with like the weight of the world on the shoulders, we like to say. Atlas is holding everything like this. Jesus isn't doing that. Like, oh, oh, I've got everything on my shoulders. I got to make the next day. No, Jesus is like the sovereign God who's carrying things to their sovereign end. He doesn't have the world on his shoulders like walking down the street. No, no, no. He upholds everything. The same book in Colossians 1.17 says, Jesus holds all things together. So we have the Son of God is not only the creator, he's the sustainer. It kind of blows my mind because you can then extrapolate from that. And as, as preachers like to do, when, when you said, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they do. It's like they're hammering nails into Jesus' flesh and he's keeping their blood flowing to do so. He's sustaining the world in a cosmic sense. The Son of God is. Yeah, I, I, I love that, Daniel. It is the will of God that atoms are held together. Yeah, make to, he holds reality together. Yes, he not only created everything, he literally sustains everything. The Son of God. 
Now, Philippians 2 tells us that Jesus had to empty himself of that glory. To a certain degree, Jesus wasn't all that. Because for the word to take flesh, he, there, there is, he, ha, he took upon himself limitations to be our mediator, to bear our sin, okay, to become flesh. There was some, okay, we understand that. So, but the Son of God, the Son of God has no limitations. He always was, he always is, he always will be. Upholding all things. He's the appointed heir. He's the maker of the universe. He's a radiance of God's glory. He's the exact representation of his nature. He upholds all things. And then he provided purification from sins. I love that. Jesus accomplished something unachievable by anybody else. Nobody else could have accomplished what Jesus did. See, we've gone from the cosmic to now the personal. Your sins are paid for because Jesus paid it all. Because what God the Son accomplished on the cross for you, for me, he provided purification for sins. You see, when Jesus is master of the universe, I don't want you to miss this. When Jesus is master of the universe, your response is, I am in awe. Wow. I don't think I'll ever use the word awesome again to describe that taco I just had because awe now belongs to you, God. Wow, I am in awe. That is Jesus is master of the universe. Or even he's the maker of the universe. Oh, wow. The sustainer. Oh, my goodness. I'm in awe. Don't miss this. Jesus secured the purification for your sin. You're not saying that anymore. You're not saying I am in awe. You're saying I am in your debt. You provided purification for my sins. I'm not just in awe. It's when we gather for worship, we gather in thanksgiving, like Jesus, you paid it all. Even that. I feel like I'm in your debt now. And I thank God that I'm not. He doesn't view it that way. It's grace. If I was in debt, I'd have to pay that back. And you can't pay back grace. Like, wow. Wow. Number seven. He sat down in majesty on high. Another messianic psalm, Psalm 110. This is one of those psalms that if I ever... I love every time I have a Jewish friend, I like to bring him to Psalm 110 and say, read it to me. Because you've got both names for God there. You've got the Adonai and you've got the Yahweh. And, and, and the, 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 the more Orthodox Jew will never say Yahweh, but they'll say Adonai. But they got to read it Adonai said to Adonai. And it doesn't make sense because it's Yahweh saying Adonai. The Lord said to Adonai, my Lord. And Jesus rightly midrashed that in the Gospels. Who was he talking to? Who's David's Lord that all of a sudden is his God? How does that make sense? And um, yeah, Mick texted in here, uh, Jesus yielded his powers, not his God identity. He's essentially God always is what Philippians 2 is about. Amen. Daniel, it is by his blood that we are saved. We can never earn our way to salvation. It is purely the gift of God that we are saved. Amen. He sat down. Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, Yahweh said to Adonai, sit at my right hand. Sit at my right hand. 
until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Dang. That's power right there. Enemies become a footstool? Like you're sitting on the nice comfy chair and you bring that lever down all of a sudden, and the, the, the bottom comes out and you have to kick your feet up. Dang, that's nice. But check this, 2 Samuel chapter 7. King David just got the great promise from God. And verse 18 said, then King David went in and sat before the Lord. He just sat down there. Let's talk, God. Let's just chill. He sat before the Lord. You'll see in blue down there, Jesus the prophet, Jesus the priest, Jesus the king. Why did I mention all that? In the Old Testament, there were three offices. Okay? You had a prophet, you had a priest, and you had the king. Those three were like the offices of it's like it's not like the three stages, three sides of government or anything like that. We have the prophets are anointed, the priests are anointed, and the kings are anointed. Okay, they are special to God, they are set apart for the task. Jesus fulfills the prophet role, the priest role, and the king role in these three verses. Jesus, the prophet, is the one through whom God has spoken his final word. Because Back in, back in the top of our text today, God's already spoken through all these, all these prophets in the ancient world. But now, God has fully and finally spoken one last time through Jesus. Jesus the prophet is through whom God has spoken his final word. Jesus the priest accomplished perfect cleansing for his people's sins. So we're not going to be surprised when the book of Hebrews talks about that. Talks about this sacrifice once for all. Hebrews is known for that. Hebrews is known for Jesus being proclaimed as our great high priest. Yeah. The author of Hebrews sets the stage in these first three verses. We're not going to be surprised starting next week when the author of Hebrews starts talking about how Jesus is better than all these other categories. Angels. He's already said he's better than the prophets. You mean Jesus is better than Moses? He's better than Elijah? He's better than all those prophets of old, Isaiah, Jeremiah? Yeah, he is. Because all those guys spoke the word of God, and they did a good job doing so. But they're not God. Jesus spoke the words of God, too. But they were his. He is God. Big difference. Big difference. As prophet, he spoke the final words of God. As priest, he accomplished the perfect cleansing for his people's sins. And as king, he sits enthroned in the place of chief honor alongside the majesty on high. That's Hebrews talk for up there with God in heaven the place where only God belongs. So the three students respond. Who remembers the three students? We had uh, Mr. Yabut. Yeah, oh, Daniel, nice text here. Jesus is the only one who could save us. All the others pointed to him. Exactly. That goes back to the top four page here. Progressive revelation begins with promise and leads to fulfillment of that promise. Our three students reading Hebrews are Yabut. Yeah, the weary, and the clay. Remember, Yabba was 
I know better. I just have other priorities. Well, here's how he responds to this text. He responds with, enough is enough. This life is not about me. That's the only way for a yeah but to get off the yeah but. If life is just one big excuse, you'll always come up with another one. That was my life for far too many years. Enough is enough. This life can't be all about me anymore. How do I know that? Because Jesus said you want to follow after him, you got to deny yourself first and foremost. Yeah, but says he denies himself. But there's always an excuse. There's always a rationalization. There's always, well, life is hard, or you don't know what I'm going through. You haven't walked a mile in my own shoes, or what, whatever garbage you're going to say, whatever kind of relativistic kind of you know mumbo-jumbo pop psychology nonsense. No. Yeah, but... No, the only way for yeah, but to stop being yeah, but is to say enough is enough. This life is not about me because I'm not those things. He just talked about Jesus being. This life has to be about him. It can't be about me. The weary, remember the weary is I don't really want to deal with my situation appropriately. I kind of want some kind of answer, preferably if it means I don't have to make a big decision. So like, Lord, if you come back and end history, we're good. I don't have to deal with this that I saw on the news, or I have to deal with this family, whatever it is, God, you come back and it's all taken care of. We're good. I just don't want to deal with it because I just don't, I just don't want to. I'm tired of dealing with life. Well, this comes back to something my dad always said to me, son, you either trust God or you don't. That great either or. And he, he would always add, you can't fake it. You, you can't fake trust. So for the weary, it's I either trust God or I don't trust God. And then I like to add this, because the weary person's wanting for the, 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 the end of time to come. Like, okay, God, just come back so we can stop having to deal with this nonsense. Well, that person needs to realize that the God is the God of the A, and God is the God of the Z. Or you want to go Greek, Alpha, Omega, fine. But the very God who's the God of the A and the God of the Z is also the God of the B to the Y. And the weary person wants the Z to come right away. Come on, Lord Jesus, come back. Come on, come on, I'm done with this. Be that God of the Z right now, even though I'm only in like the Q or the R, or wherever we're at. No. You either trust God now or you're not really trusting God at all. What's the point? The clay, remember the clay? I see the seasons of life as times to be molded and shaped. Teach me, God, during these harder times. The clay, which by the way, if you're not the clay, pray to be the clay. That's the response we want to have. That's where I finally am in my life. It's taken me a long time to get there. And by golly, I'm finally there. I'm beginning to see my life that way. And it's how I'm able to do the things I do. And, you know, as I counsel people and I help people, I have to be that person. And that person says, what about me needs to change? What fruit is growing on the branches of the tree that is my life? What fruit is withering? on those branches. Mick texted in, ultimately the difference between both yeah, but and weary to clay is that clay recognizes God, repents daily and is saved. The other two are not. Trust God, be grateful, persevere and worship God in praise. Yeah. You see, 2020, and I've said this before, 2020 has done you all a service. That service for you as a Christian is, how are you on social media? 
Because if you've behaved this year, if you have not posted every random thing you want to post on social media, it's like social media has given you an opportunity, whether it's Facebook or Twitter or whatever, it's given you an opportunity to grow or to show rather, you don't really grow it, but to, to show the fruit of the spirit called self-control. On so many people's Facebook pages, that fruit is either flourishing or withering. Which is it? See, the, the clay says, what about me needs to change? What fruit is growing on my branches? And what fruit is withering? God, I know some things need to stop withering. I need to get in line. I, I need to start obeying. See, the clay is always looking. The clay is not beating yourself up. The clay is saying, God, what are you teaching me? My ears are open. I'm having ears to hear. The three students respond. And we're not going to do all these three students probably every week, but it's just these are moments where how are you responding to God's word? If you always have an excuse, knock it off. That's not the way we live as Christians. If you're just wanting for God to come back so you don't have to deal with life, you're missing the point of life. Be the clay. It makes us a wake-up call from idols. Some of us place too much confidence in our jobs, our flesh. We've forgotten our need for complete total dependence among God. And honestly, let's just go there, okay? We all saw the news today. Okay, we all saw what was going on in Washington, D.C., all right? And some of us were like, oh, my gosh. Some of us were cheering. Some of us were angry. Some of us were happy. Some of us were sad. Some of us were mopping our brow. All of us were probably looking at our Facebook feed and watching half of our Facebook friends go crazy and the other half not go crazy. And we're going, what in the world do we do? And I'm, I'm trying to take all this in and going, I got to teach tonight. What do I do? What do I do? How do I deal with this? Well, how would the clay deal with this? The clay would deal with it this way. The clay would say, you know what? There's things that I can control about my situation, and there's things I can't control about my situation. And for those of you who know me, you know I like to go here. This is my number one move. What can I control? What can't I control? Well, just look at what happened today in the political world. What can't I control? Most things I can't control. None of us are in control what's going on seven states that way. We have no control over that. Zero. Nothing. So what do we do? Colossians 2 says, since then you've been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. Ooh, we just read that tonight, didn't we? Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. So at some point you have to, when you can't control your situation, your response is, I trust God. I'm just going to set my mind set my heart, set my attitude on things above. I'm going to say, you know what? God's got this. I don't know how he's got this. I don't know what's going to happen, but I'm going to trust God. God's got this. But you see, what can I control about my situation? You see, what the clay does says, shape me on this lump of clay, shape me, Lord. Help me know what I'm supposed to do. Teach me. When I can't control things, I trust him. When I can control things, I better be honoring him. So continuing in Colossians 2, here we go. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Verse 12, therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. How about verse 15? Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you are called to peace and be thankful. You see, what can you control most days? You can control your attitude. 
You can control your response. You can control how you choose to live this life. You can't control most things in your life, but you can control that. So what you can't control, trust God. What you can control, honor God. And you honor God by giving him glory. You honor God by living like the Beatitudes. You honor God by, I don't know, fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Those should be on your tree. And if they're not, you're wrong. If they're not, you know how you need to pray. God, the fruit of self-control is not on my, on my tree. Why is this? What needs to change about me, God? so that I can have that fruit on my tree. Because you are the vine and I am the branches, John 15. You know how to pray for yourself that way. That's what the clay does. If you embrace the book of Hebrews with that third person, the clay, you're in a good spot. I get it if you're weary. I get it. I'm not judging if you're weary. I'm not judging if you're yeah, but. My goodness, there's hope for the yeah, but. I know because I'm sitting here in front of you. That used to be me. I had a season in my life where I was also the weary one. Like, oh, I just don't, I'm not going to deal with this. God, you're going to deal with it. You're just never going to, I don't have to worry about it, God. It's in your hands. And then I never dealt with anything. And that was wrong. So finally it became the clay. This is our journey in Hebrews. I'm so glad you're on that journey with me. God bless you guys. Thanks for letting me share.